Okay, if we open our Bibles to Romans 5 and verse 12. What I want to share today is what is known as the doctrine of original sin. But what I want to point out from this really is how much salvation is bound up in Jesus Christ and assurance is bound up in him also. So if we all stand as we give our attention to the reading of scripture. I read from Romans 5, verse 12 to 19, and then we'll pray. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But for, for sin... Indeed, was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made or constituted as righteous. Okay, so obviously I've read more than we're going to cover there, but I want to highlight certain things. So first of all, it says in our text in verse 14 there that Adam, obviously referring to the first man whom God created back in Genesis, Adam was a type that is, he is a prefigure of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look with me at the end of verse 14 there, it says, Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, the one who was to come there, the passage flat out tells us, is Jesus Christ, who Adam is compared with and contrasted with in this passage. Now, by a type, it means a pattern. You see, by a type, we mean something that is represented by a model or a symbol beforehand. For instance, earlier in Romans... Abraham is set forward as a type of those who would believe. Abraham is called the father of faith or the father of those who would believe. Meaning he is set forth, he is given as an example of all those who like Abraham would be saved not by works but by faith. But by believing Jesus Christ. So Adam is set forth now in this passage as a type, as a pattern to be compared and contrasted to Jesus Christ. I mean, in first, you have it in 1 Corinthians 15, don't you? Where these two men, Adam and Christ, are actually referred to as the, the first and the last Adam. And the first and the last man there also. Now, 
There are many ways in which we can draw comparisons and contrasts between Adam and Christ. There are many ways we can see Adam as a type of Christ. For instance, the first Adam was created in the image, in the likeness of God. Whereas the last Adam, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The first Adam rebelled in the garden and he put himself in the place of God. Whereas the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was God, but in order to save us, he puts himself in the place of man. The first Adam, before he fell, he did not toil nor sweat. And then toil and sweat were given to him as part of the curse. Whereas the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in the garden of Gethsemane, he labored in toil and sweat, sweating great drops of blood there. The first Adam had a crown of thorns, uh, had thorns given to him as part of the curse. Whereas the second Adam, Jesus Christ, wore a crown of thorns, bearing our curse. The, the first Adam in the garden sinned at a tree. The, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, bore our sins by hanging upon a tree as he hung upon the wood there. The, the first Adam was naked and not ashamed in the garden. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, was naked and bore our shame on the cross. The first Adam was looking for a bride suitable for him. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, has come seeking a bride, his bride, the believers. The first Adam died because he was a guilty sinner. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, died for and on behalf of guilty sinners. Uh, to create the bride of the first Adam, he, his side was, God opened his side. And to create the, the bride of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he was pierced in his side. Uh, the first Adam uh, was a gardener. When Mary went to the tomb, she mistook the second Adam, Jesus Christ, for a gardener. Are you the gardener? I mean... You know, you have people who doubt the word of God today. You just could not make this up. <laughs> God put Adam to sleep in order to create his bride. Well, in order to create the, the second Adam, the bride of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, God put Christ to the sleep of death. In the garden, God brought to Adam his wife. God, the father, he gives the... Sorry, yeah, God brought his wife to Adam, I should say. But in God gives the believers uh, to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the first Adam gave his bride a commandment. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor touch it lest you die. Well, Christ, the second Adam, gave his bride a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, whilst there are many comparisons we can make, much more besides those, of course, with Adam being a type of Christ, the one which our text is primarily concerned with here is that Adam and Christ are both representative heads of a people. Adam was representative head before God of the human race, who is yet to be born, yet to descend from him. Whereas the Lord Jesus Christ is also the head of a race that would descend from him, but not those born physically, but those born spiritually. You see, the first Adam is the representative head before God of all those who are born of the flesh by physical birth. People come into this world represented by Adam and his actions. Whereas the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is the representative head of all those who are born of the Spirit by new birth. You see, when Adam acted, he acted on behalf of the people whom he represented. When Christ acted, he also acted on behalf of the people whom he represented, the believers, or those who would believe. And so... If you notice in verse 12, we are told that here that when Adam sinned, the whole human race 
although yet to be born, sinned and was guilty with Adam. Notice in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, the one man being Adam, and death through sin, the death being the penalty that God gave uh, for sin back in the garden. Of course, it included physical death, but it was much more than that to be separated from God and resulted in final separation. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we are told here in verse 12 that death is a consequence. Death is a penalty of sin. So back in Genesis, remember, what God originally created the world in its perfect state. At first, there was no death, but death was given, the death of man here, as a penalty for sin. The Lord commanded Adam in the garden, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, thereof you will surely die. So death came into the world as a penalty of Adam breaking that commandment. Now, of course, it was Eve who took the forbidden fruit. But again, Adam is held responsible, it says, through one man here, because Adam is representative head. You see, we are told in these verses the reason why people die today. It's because we are related by physical birth to Adam, and so we inherit the penalty of Adam's sin. Now, Let me also point out here that when it says at the end of verse 12, so death spread to all men because all sinned, when it says all sinned there, that does not mean that death spread to all men because they all sinned individually there. Because all sinned there, in the original, it's in what is called the the aorist tense. That means it's a specific action once for all. You see, what we are being told here is that in this one transgression of Adam, the whole human race, although yet to be born, sinned and counted guilty in that one act. And I just point out, uh, in case anyone's reading from the the King James, I noticed it was a little different. Uh, There is an error uh, in this verse. It's not translated that well. It says... In that, ver- that version it says, So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. But you see, that could be taken the wrong way to, uh, for people to mean that people die because they've sinned individually. Uh, but that's not what it says in the original language. Uh, we, it says they have all sinned in that one act of Adam here. And... I mean, you can see that this is what's being referred to throughout this passage. If you, if you look in verse 15, it says, For if many died through one man's trespass, many died there through that one, one, man, one trespass of Adam. That's why the death penalty fell upon all men, because we were counted guilty in Adam. Verse 16 also, And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. What was the result of the sin of Adam? Well, he continues... For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So Paul's point here is that this one sin of Adam brought condemnation to the entire human race who was yet to be born from his loins. And verse 17 also. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, people die because of the penalty of Adam's sin. And verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, for all Adam's people there. So when Adam sinned, he acted on behalf of the people he represented. And so in that one act of transgression, the whole human race yet to be born was counted guilty with Adam. Verse 19 For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Many were accounted sinners before God because of that one man, Adam's disobedience. Now, let me also add here in verse 19, uh, just a quick note. When it says there, 
For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. That does not mean here, as some take it to mean, that because of Adam's sin we inherit a sinful nature. Now, I'm not disputing that as a fact, of course. You know, the Bible is quite clear. People are born with a sinful nature. Uh, That is, we are born with a a propensity, uh, a nature with a propensity that is bent on sinning. Sinning comes natural to us. Uh, You know, we, we come forth speaking lies from our mother's womb. But although people are born with a sinful nature, I'm not disputing that. What I am saying here is verse 19 is not referring to that. Because, listen closely, when people claim that verse 19 is saying, for, as by one man's disobedience, the many were given a sinful nature, well, if we're going to be consistent, if that's what it means there, when, when you get the the opposite there in the next part of the verse, when it says in the second half of verse 9, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Well, if you take the first part to mean a sinful nature, the second, it, the second part would have to mean that we are justified because we are given a righteous nature, because we're made holy. But of course, when does God justify us? When he makes us holy, or does he justify us whilst we're still ungodly? And I point that out because that made sinners there. I mean, it's led to all sorts of crazy infant baptism doctrines, washing away original sin and holiness teachings and things like that. But anyway, through the one act of Adam's sin is Paul's point throughout here. The whole human race yet to be born that Adam represented was accounted a guilty sinner in Adam and condemned before God. So, in these verses, we are given the heads, two representative heads of two races, two peoples, two nations. Adam, the first man, is the representative head of all those born physically, whereas Christ, the second man, the last Adam, is the representative head of the new race, the people he represents, that is the believers. Those, not those who were born of the flesh, born of Adam, but those who were born of the Spirit. So, Paul is teaching that when Adam acted, he acted on behalf of his people that he represented, that was the entire human race. And when Jesus Christ, the second Adam, acted, he acted on behalf of his people, those who would believe. And this is also... Uh, a reason why there had to be a virgin birth. Because the Savior had to be born without what we call original sin. Because if Christ had been born with this guilt of Adam, you see, when we're born, we're already condemned. But if so, if Christ couldn't have been born with this guilt of Adam, otherwise he couldn't have been our, our Savior. So that's why the, there had to be a virgin birth there. Now, on hearing this, you know, the objection sometimes arises, people, maybe questions popping up in your mind saying, but, but that's not fair. How can I be held accountable for something my ancestor did? Well, number one, we are accountable for the, for the actions of a federal or representative head all the time. It's part of life. You see, for instance, when a father sins... It affects his wife and children. It can even affect the next generation. You know, you have a a father, maybe he's a a son of a rich man, inherits it. He becomes an alcoholic, blows it all. That doesn't even get passed down to the next generation. When the head of, of a company messes up, goes bankrupt, the workforce that are under him are without a job. Um, To give you another example, when the president or a head of a nation acts, he acts on behalf of the people of that nation whom he represents. And the the whole nation is affected by the actions, good or bad. Many of you were born with a national debt. Was it you? 
You know, when a leader of a country declares war on another country, the whole country whom he represents is at war with that other country. You know, back in World War II, it wasn't just those in the trenches that fought, but the people back home, the war effort there. You know, in the the early days of England, there was something there called the 100 Years' War. What happened was, in, in the year 1066, I'll give you a bit of English history, but the King of Normandy, which is a very large part of France, he came over and he conquered the English. But the result of that was the King of the king of the new king of england who was french he now had more land because he had normandy as well he had more land in the french than the french which don't, didn't go very down very well so what you ended up with was a, a war that lasted for 100 years imagine that but here's my point in bringing up this illustration you could be born in the in the middle of that war and you could die before the end of it and you were at war all your life, because of the act of a representative head. And so this suffering the consequences of the actions of a federal or representative head, someone acting on our behalf, it's something that happens all the time. But I mean also, I mean let's face it, it's not as if that if Adam, uh, it's not as if, if Adam's sin was not counted to you, then you'd be innocent. Because you'd still have all your own sin to deal with. But, but also, if it was unfair for God to count you guilty with Adam, then it would also to be unfair for God to count you righteous with Jesus Christ. You see, God has made it this way, not because he is unfair, but out of mercy so that he could justify us through the one act of another representative. Let me read you this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, it was by one man's sin that we all fell through the first Adam. Does anyone object to the justice of that? I pray you, do not object to what is your only hope. If you and I had each one sinned for himself or herself apart from Adam, our case would probably have been as hopeless like the case of fallen angels who sinned individually and fell never to be set up again. But in in as much as we fell representatively in Adam, it prepared the way for us to rise representatively in the second Adam, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. As I fell by another, I can rise by another. As my ruin was caused by the first man, Adam, my restoration can be brought about by the second man, the Lord from heaven. Now then, another question, of course, that comes up with this uh, being counted guilty with Adam's sin is what about then the individual nature of the judgment? I mean, there are so many verses that make it clear that on judgment day, we're going to be judged by our works. But the answer to that is that, you see, just like our works do not justify us, but rather our works prove whether our faith in Christ is real or not. Well, in the same way, our works will prove which of these two men we belong to. Adam or Christ. But, you know, as as Martin Lloyd-Jones once pointed out, that if if someone rejects the doctrine of original sin because they're being counted guilty in Adam because they do not understand it, then, uh, you know, simply because they cannot get their head around it, uh, you know, thinking, how could it be right? If someone rejects it on that basis, then they have left the authority of Scripture. And their own understanding has become their authority. You know, it's like those who people... Who refuse to embrace the Trinity because they can't get their head round? How can God be three and yet one? Three distinct persons, yet one God. Well, I can't get my head around it either, but I believe it because Scripture reveals it so clearly. You see, you don't have to perfectly understand every single thing to believe it, but you should trust God for what His Word teaches. You know, hum- humble ourselves like a child. So then, Adam 
was appointed by God as a representative head of the human race. And in the same way, Jesus Christ was appointed by God, uh, his father, to do a work for his race, the believers. Now, another way in which this works with Adam and Christ here is that God made a covenant with Adam. As long as you obey, and as long as Adam obeyed and he did not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you and your people whom you represent can stay with me in perfect harmony in the garden. That was the covenant that God made with Adam there. And God the Father has made the same covenant with his son, the second Adam. That as long as Christ, the second Adam, as long as you are obedient to his, as long as Christ is obedient to his father, then Christ and the people whom he represents can come into and stay in perfect fellowship with God. As verse 18 and 19 says there, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, although there are, there are things similar with Adam and Christ there as our representative heads, there, there are also glorious contrasts shown in this passage. And notice what it says in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. You see, there is a way in which this work of Adam is not like the work of Jesus Christ. After saying that it is like it in certain ways, Paul then he interrupts himself, as he often does, and he says, but listen now to some ways, comparisons, in which it is not like. And so, in verse 15, he continues, For if many died through one man's trespass, now notice this, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What we are given, being given here with these much more is what you call a how much more argument. You see, Paul is reasoning, if this is true, then how much more is this, is this true? You know, going through, going, going through Romans back at home, I mean, I was speaking to a dear brother, a pastor in, in Spain called Pedro, when we went over. And he, he was going through, uh, he was saying how, how he'd been blessed by, by Martin Lloyd-Jones commentaries. And, and he, he made the remark that Lloyd-Jones, you know, he'd, he'd say, he'd open a verse in Romans and he'd say, that this is the most important text, this is the greatest text in Scripture. And then he'd turn and, he'd, and he'd, in, the, in the next verse he'd say it again. In the next chapter, he'd say it again and again and again. And, but as you go through, it really is like that. It's like uh, just looking at a diamond and you see a different glow. And as, I've, you know, as we've been going through these, I've, 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 I've sometimes been thinking, you know, I wish, I, I can't wait till I can share these truths with the brethren coming up here. And I mean, some weeks, because I was a little ahead of where I was going, I, I was thinking, well, I want to share this, but I don't want to overload them. I wish I had a time machine and I could jump, <laughs> jump forward to next Sunday and share again. But the context of this chapter, beloved, is assurance of salvation. What Paul is arguing in chapter 5 is that since justification, since our being right with and accepted by God, is not dependent upon any works we do. Since it is not dependent upon our merits, it's not dependent on our ability to perform, but since it's by faith, as he says in verse 1, in what Christ has done, since it is dependence upon Christ, it then final salvation, Paul is arguing here, is a certainty 
for all who believe this good news. And so what Paul the Apostle is giving us in this argument here, he is reasoning with you now why you can be assured of final salvation if you believe this gospel. You see, Paul's point, uh, the point he's trying to make here with this how much more argument, I mean, let me just boil it down and give it to you in a nutshell and then I'll try and show it you in scripture. But that is that the work of Christ acting upon our behalf He has not just brought us back to the original position that Adam was in. Many believers know this, but don't think like this. Can fall into a trap. You see, as we'll see in a moment, Christ has brought the believer into a position way beyond what Adam was ever in. To a position, he has brought us to a position that Adam never had. If you look with me in verse 15 at some of the differences... But the free gift is not like the trespass for, he elaborates on now on on how it is different. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, how much more, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What does this mean? Well, as it says at the end of chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. The penalty of death and separation uh, from God when when we sinned in Adam, that was something that was earned. But this is not like salvation because we do not earn that. It comes as a gift and by grace. Christ earned it for us and it comes to us as a gift as unmerited favor. So, there is a glorious contrast here, because although we earn condemnation, when God saves a person by his gospel, he takes us out of the realm of wages. We're no longer dealing with him in terms of wages, in terms of what we earn, what we deserve. We no longer get what we deserve from God. You see, Every lost person is relating to God on the basis of what they deserve. That is what the Muslims are trying to do, the Catholics, many religious people. They think, if I do this, whatever it is in their religion, so long as I perform, then I get what I deserve. But have you seen this? Are you you still trying to relate to God like that on the basis of what you deserve? You see, all we deserve from God is eternal death and condemnation. So don't try to relate to God on the basis of what you deserve. But as this verse tells us, that when God saves someone, he no longer relates to us on the basis of what we deserve. But by grace, by the free gift. Let me put it another way. God now deals with a believer from the moment they believe this good news as, as we sung there, you know, in Christ alone, myself, here in, it's in him I stand. God, from the moment someone believes, God now deals with a believer not on the basis of what he deserves or what we deserve in, in Adam, but God deals with a believer on the basis of what Christ deserves. I mean, think about this for practical assurance. You know, some, some days uh, you may, let's say you, you sin, uh, you repent. Uh, let's say a mother is uh, maybe grumpy with her husband or loses her temper with the children. Of course, never happens in here. <laughs> but, but let's say you do that and you, you're feeling condemned. And, but you've repented of it. It's not as if you're holding... Uh, over any sin, but you go to God and you can't feel as strong in prayer that day. Or you have an opportunity to share with someone and you feel condemned, but you feel as if you can't. But you must realize this, that God is not dealing with you on the basis of how well you performed, but on the basis of what Christ deserved. Now, does not Christ deserve to draw to God? You see, you're drawing to God through him. 
Now, a second argument for assurance given here, as if the first is not enough, but verse 16 says, and I mean, it's interesting how he just gives us one after another because we, we can have a tendency to look at self so much. But in the, verse 16 he says, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Notice the opposites there. Condemnation, justification. You see, Adam's trespass brought to his people judgment and condemnation. But when Christ acted on behalf of his people, on, on behalf of you if you're a believer... When Christ acted, it was not like that because he brought his people justification. <clears throat> but here's the point with a how much more, which it's not like, but much more, it's greater than. What I want to show you is that Christ, he has not just brought you back to the position that Adam was in. Remember, the context, assurance of salvation is what Paul is trying to reason with you here. You see, don't miss this. When Adam was in the garden, Adam was not justified. When Adam was in the garden, he was on a sort of probation there. You see, when Adam was in the garden, he was not in a position of being justified forever before God. Even in his original state, before he fell, there was always a chance of him being kicked out of the garden. Adam could stay in the garden and in fellowship with God as long as he obeyed. He was on probation there. But this is the point. That being in Christ, he has not brought us back to that position Adam was in. He's brought us to much more than that. Do you see this, believer? Or do you still think of yourself or even fall into the mindset that you're somehow on probation before God? You see, if you believe this gospel, if you've come to trust in Christ alone for your hope before God, then you're not on probation. Christ has not just brought you back into the position that Adam was in, but he has justified the believer once and forever, as it says in 5 verse 1 there. And if you notice how Paul, I mean, he keeps saying grace, grace through this passage. And he talks about abounding grace. You know, God delights in giving grace. I mean, you see this in the parable of the prodigal son there. When, when he, he's just, you know, the, after squandering his, his father's inheritance, going just living a, a vile lifestyle. And you see that when he, when he returns to God, God's not there, his father's not there, arms folded. You've got a cheek on you. You know, as if we're expecting too much. I just realize you don't understand that word cheek, but... <laughs> and it's no good because we was, we was trying to translate it and we couldn't do but he, he, as if he was just being presumptuous and his father wasn't frowning at him, was it? No, he came running to him and embracing him. You see, that is the position that God has brought the believer into. You know, and that is, that is not just true of, you know, of, of first salvation, that parable. As Spurgeon used to call that parable of the, the prodigal, the backslider's parable. Because that is how God treats returning backsliders. That's how he always treats. And he always, again, you know, those promises. If anyone comes to me, I will in no wise cast you out. They're always true. There's no limit to it. I mean, how do you put a limit on grace? Listen to this quote by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, grace is to bless the utterly undeserving. How do you under, if, if grace is to bless the undeserving, then how do you undeserve grace? 
Grace is to bless the utterly undeserving. It is favor shown to people who deserve anything but favor. We deserve wrath and hatred and punishment and perdition. It was while we were ungodly, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, he sent his only dearly beloved son into the world. God delights in his graciousness. And he continues, I mean, listen to this. Grace always abounds. Grace must never be thought of in static mechanical terms. No, no. There is no measure to grace. No limit. It is illimitable. You think you have it all. And then there is more. And then there is more. And then there is more. And as a believer you know this. And all the way to eternity. There is no end to it. It is eternal. It is illimitable. It is immeasurable. This is the realm, believer, into which you have been brought. I mean, listen to Ephesians 2 verse 4. But but God being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Not just God is merciful. You you always have to put these qualifiers. Not just God loved the world, but God so Because of the great love, not just love, but the great love in which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, this was why, He might show, this is what he wants to show you, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, the position of those in Adam is not, or the original Adam, is not the opposite of what we have been brought into in Christ. The believer is not on probation. Adam was in a position where he could fall away. What did Jesus say in John 10, 28? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hands. I mean, it's unbelievable how you, you you know, when someone's trying to say a true believer can lose their salvation and you quote that verse to him and they come up with an objection and they say, ah, but it doesn't say that you can't walk yourself out of his hand. But then, then they would perish. And he says, you will never perish. Yeah. I mean, you see, in Romans 5 here, Paul, he, he builds up in great crescendo to, to where he gets to at the end. What he's trying to get to us, what he wants us to be fully convinced of, is that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He wants you to have this assurance So are you realizing this, believer, that through the work of Christ, God has brought you into a much better position than Adam was ever in? Do you realize that you're no longer on probation? You know, sometimes Christians can fall into a mindset that when they, when they sin, they have to, it's like they have to sit in a kind of sin bin and, and do some time before they can go back to God rather than repenting. When they're, when they're in there committing further sins of unbelief. But I remember I did once early in my walk. I'd get into this mindset. As, of course, I, I didn't believe this kind of technically, but it was kind of the uh, unbelief, uh, in unbelief where it's almost when you sinned, you got yourself saved all over again. And you had to start from square one. But listen... You know, in Nazi Germany in World War II, often the the Allies would escape and they'd cross the border into Switzerland. Well, it was a whole different matter if, while trying to escape, if they fell in Nazi Germany, when they got up, they were still in Nazi Germany. But it was a different matter. They they once they crossed that border, if they if they fell in Switzerland, they didn't. When they got up, they wasn't back in Nazi Germany again. And you see, this is like the position God has brought us into, into his grace. 
taken us out of Adam and into Christ for the believers. When you, when you fall, you don't go back in Adam. But you stay in Christ. And, and grace reigns. He picks you up. Now lastly, anyone who's come in here lost today. You know, I, I, I think of young children in here wanting to be saved. Or, or people who believe but have no assurance. You want more. Do you see what it says in verse 18? Let me read it. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation to all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Notice, one trespass, Adam's trespass led to condemnation. You see, it's not about what you've done or how I can do. You were condemned in Adam. It's not about your own performance in getting saved. You, you can't make yourself right with God if you're related to Adam and therefore condemned. But also, verse 19 reads, For as by one man's disobedience the many will be made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. By the obedience of one, as the old King James says, the many were made righteous. Listen, you are not the one who can make yourself righteous before God. It's not by your obedience that you can be made righteous. But it's the obedience of the one Jesus Christ. By what he did acting upon your behalf. It's only by his obedience we can be counted righteous before God. You see, in order to be saved, there is nothing you and I can do to merit salvation. Nothing we can do to merit God saving us. But it comes, it's offered as a free gift. You know, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the 18th century preacher, he gave a, an analogy once. Uh, a school teacher was in, his, uh, was in the class and he, and he held up one of those pocket watches. This was a, a watch was a rare thing. It was a treasure in those days. And he held up and he, and he said to the children of the class, you, you come and, and take, uh, if, if, if you come, you, you can take, you can have my watch. It's a free gift. And he asked the first person and he didn't believe him. Thought there was some catch so he wouldn't take it. And then he asked the second person. He wouldn't come and take it. Then he asked the third person. He wouldn't come and take the watch. Then the fourth person just came, took the watch, put it in his pocket. All the other children looked surprised and I could have had that. Well, listen, you can have this, what Christ has done, if you will just believe on Christ, that he has paid for your sins. You know, the gospel is not a complicated thing. So rely on Christ. Believe him now. You're asked to do. You're commanded to do. I mean, hear what it says in verse 16. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Hear that? Many trespasses. The salvation in Christ does not just cover Adam's sin, but it covers all your own sins. The many trespasses following. It's enough to cover every sin. Let me put this another way. And then we'll close. You know, sometimes people change citizenship of a country. They resign from one uh, country and get a new passport. A citizen of, of another. You're born into this world in Adam, of Adam's country. Why not change? Why not change your passport? Because you're given a free invitation for this. All you have to do is believe on Christ, trust in him. It's there for the taking. 
He offered, not because of anything you've done. You can't earn it. But it's there for you if you'll just believe on Christ. Of what he's done. And you'll be justified once and forever. You'll pay for all your sins. He'll never count them to you again. And he, he adopts you in his family. He takes you out of Adam's family. And he puts you into his own family. God will bring you up as his child. If you'll just believe this good news. He'll bring you up. So believe Christ now. It's there for the taking. Don't hesitate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you made it so that we fell in Adam so that we could be raised in Christ to a living hope. I thank you for this marvelous grace that you have brought us into, that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. I pray you would help the believers be assured in this sermon and to have joy in you, joy in Christ's performance. We praise you for such wondrous love and mercy that we cannot put a limit on your grace and love towards us. And we look forward to the eternity that we will spend just knowing more of this love. And I pray for For those who came in here unsure or in Adam, that you would draw them to yourself so they could trust in you, believe in you, to have the salvation on offering Christ. We thank you that your gospel is offered so freely and so simply, without works, but just believing you and what you've done. I pray you would transfer people through this word to one kingdom to another. To come into Emmanuel's land and serve the Christ, the living God. In Jesus' name, amen.